Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Shelly, Tara, Rachel, Abby, the Reverends Langenstein, and Annalise. Thank you for your money. It makes the show happen. Mm-hmm. And if you would like to help make the show happen, you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you will get access to the patron-only podcast feed, which has some bonus content from over the past month. It also is going to have some bonus content, I think, this week. And the patron-only podcast that Ian and I record, which is called Pillow Talk, which is getting up near 100 episodes. I think I said that a while ago, but it's still true. Like, we are, we're in the 90s. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a lot. It's been fun. It's So you've got plenty of content to listen to if you're interested. You can also rate, review, and subscribe if you don't want to give us money, or you can share us on social media, or you can just keep listening, because that's good, too. It is good, too. And now, on to the show. One, two, five, nine! Robin, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome to What the Hell is a Pastor, a podcast about life in set-apart ministry. Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. So, Ethan, we haven't recorded an episode since, like, November. Yes. We took we took the whole month of December off because of cancer. So I figured we'll just kind of catch up this episode, and then I have a I have a secret question to ask to see how things go. Perfect. How how's stuff in your world? Any updates for us? Uh, it's not great. There are parts <laughs> there are parts of it that are good. So like Elliot, my son, is doing very well. He's you know he's he's big. For, particularly for two months, he's sweet. He's he's great. I love my son. I love both my children very much. But like, I have to. Sometimes I have to explain to people. I'm like, when Adrea was born, my daughter, Adrea spent the first oh seven or eight months of her life screaming. Right. And and it's hard to you know, it's hard to love a thing like it's it's easy to love a thing like that. Like I loved her, but it's hard to like her. Right. And so, and so, my son is very, very different, and so I sort of immediately liked him, you know, as, as well as loved him. Um, and there's some other things behind that, like I, uh, when Adrea, the nine months before Adrea was born, I obsessed over her, like I obsessed over Beth's pregnancy and and our new life, and and so like when Andrea was born, it was like ah, oh, of course, here it is, the full fruits of my of my anticipation, and then but the nine months before Elliot was born, I just felt nothing. You know, I had no feelings of one way or the other. Like, and I just and it made me feel very guilty. And so when Elliot was born, and I looked at him, and I immediately fell in love with him. I was like, oh, perfect. Whew, at least I won't have to fake it my 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 poor son's whole life. But so that's like a nice thing that's happening. But other than that, it's really bad. We had a great and from church, from a church perspective, we had a five star Christmas morning service. Really? Absolutely. It was a pajama we my practice is to wear pajamas the Sunday after Christmas Eve. Uh, so I announced that for a few weeks. Lots of people came in their pajamas, and we didn't have a music ministry person at the Gordonsville Church. We had nobody to play piano for Christmas morning. Ugh. 
and um, everybody's in their pajamas. And I looked over at one of at Peyton, who's one of the who who is my confirmand. Like she's gonna be, she's getting confirmed in the next couple of months. And I know that Peyton can sort of play piano, so I I asked Peyton to come up and play our starting notes and stuff. And nice. we're cracking jokes. Everybody's laughing and having a good time. And uh, I got to the sermon and I really liked the sermon I wrote. Like it was, it was like, it was just a fun sermon on like joy and why I love wearing pajamas and why so many of our repu- so much of our reputation as Christians is sort of rooted in, you know, kind of the evacuation of joy. <laughs> you know, we can't, we can't, Christians are trying to stop drag shows, which the only reason a drag show exists is for us to all laugh, you know, like, and have a good time. And so we're horrible. But uh, <laughs> we are. I get it. It's just, I, and I know that, like, this is a thing we can say. It's just surprising to hear somebody say it. Yeah. But, like, I talked about how, you know, that, that sort of robs us of, of, like, a real gift of salvation, right? It ro- like, like, part of, part of what it means to be saved is, is, is that we can now, if we didn't before, we can now have, you know, look at the world around us and see real delight in the world, you know, and we should, we should see real delight in people and in the world and in art and in all of these things, just like if we wear our pajamas to church and like, you know, everybody laughed. Everybody liked that. And I pointed out at the end of the sermon, I was like, hey, guys, I just want you all to see. Like, we didn't have any visitors. It was a really sh- – it was like maybe 12 people, you know. I was like, hey, I wanted you – I want you all to see. Like, because we are so relaxed today, not one of you freaked out that we didn't have a piano player. True. And they were like, yeah, I guess that's true. And I was like – yeah, maybe you guys should keep that in mind. You know, like <laughs> things are good. And like, I, I thought it was a really good day. Yeah, I like that. So with Elliot, because you and I talked about your kind of anxiety over over Elliot. And I think part of that is that like people don't talk about how hard it is to be a parent for the first time. People don't talk about what a challenge it can be when your child isn't the one that like has the perfect sleeping schedule and is just like a dream and is quiet all the time, you know, like it can be really hard when you're a new parent and you were also starting a new job in a new place as a pastor with Mm -hmm. a new child who had been in the NICU. Like you had a lot going on through Adrea's first couple of months of life. And it makes complete and total sense to me that you would have these anxieties about, about what it was going to be like to have your second child and also that you would talk about those first couple months with Adrea that way because not that Adrea is like a beautiful human being she oh, is, she's great she's so smart and she's so funny and she's so self-assured mm-hmm. and like in in a way that I envy because I don't know that I was ever like that like she's a great kid but also I know for a fact that like you lost a lot of sleep <laughs> because of right. cuz it's hard to have a baby. And so like I want to I want to kind of affirm for you that like this is um 
something like being able to hold together all of these ideas of like, gosh, you're just so relieved that you have a kid that's not screaming all the time. Like, that's okay. Like, it is okay to have these feelings that feel kind of selfish. Like, it does not mean that you love your kids any less. And I think that's something that like, is worth holding up and, and thinking about. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. You know, because you're right. The the host of feelings that are that are a part that that I continue to feel over my kids are are endless, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've got that selfishness, and you've got you know the desire for them to be good and to be okay, and you want to be able to sleep. You you don't want to be screamed at, you know. Right. Even if like like, and that's true. Like Adrea just had a really bad tummy. You know, and and she would eat, and she would be in pain, and she would scream, mm-hmm. and that would just be how it would be, and this is how, that's how it would go, you know, for months and months. And Elliot's not really like that, and so it's lovely <laughs> yeah. to do that with him in many ways. But no, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Do you think that now that like I assume that you don't use your kids a lot in sermons because you're not really a pastor in the nineties. So like, I guess that that's not like your go-to move for things, but like, have you ever reflected theologically on any of these feelings? Has it come up in sermons or in your writing? Like when Rick was on the podcast the first time he, I think asked you about this. He's like, you have a new kid, like has this changed how you think about things. And you gave a very like, uh, polite answer, I think because Adrea was screaming all of the time and you were like, I don't, I don't know what else to say. Uh, but like, is this something that provides fruitful, like fodder for reflection for you? Or is it just something that you are still keeping in your, in your brain? Um, so I don't, I don't like to tell stories about what my kids do. Mm. Because that's not really anybody's business, right? It's the same thing with Beth. Like, I I fairly freely talk about my relationships if it means if it makes sense in sermons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like one of my practices. So, like this is a silly thing, but like every Mother's and Father's Day, you know, I always tell a, a different story about my mom or dad at, at, at the beginning, you know, and and try to incorporate that in the message. But like, I don't tell stories about like Beth, mm. but like when I talk about my, my marriage relationship as an example, you know, I might talk about the ways in which I experience like grace or I experience um, things that are pertinent to what, what I'm talking about. Like I'm not a stand up comedian. I don't, I'm not trying to make people laugh necessarily. And it's the same thing with Adrea and Elliot. Like I, I did talk about them recently when I talked about uh, during Advent when, when I talked about patience and just about you know how I think that my kids have taught me how impatient we are as people, you know. And I don't mean that because because my kids are particularly impatient, but because I have kids now. And, right. and kids are by nature impatient beings, but that's mostly just because they don't have a way to like stay still and like hold, like hold off their impatience, right? The same amount of impatience they have, we have, we just have more skills to be able to ignore it if we need to. 
but it's all mm. the same of feelings. It's all the same desire, right? And so, like, that's what I would do. But I, I, I would say that, like, if I have like one like real solid reflection on like parenthood, um, that I don't mean as like a this is why everybody should be a parent. It's I've thought about sanctification in new ways because of being a parent. Hmm. Um, I sort of I thought about that too when I got married. That's actually to me it's the most Christian uh, argument for gay marriage um, I've ever heard was from Dr. Kendall Solon, uh, where. Uh, uh, he made the argument for it in theology class, and then he made the argument for it, the same argument at his annual conference, oh, where wow. where Kendall Solon says gay, gay marriages should be totally accepted by at least the Methodist Church, because the Methodist Church affirms that marriage is a site of Christian holiness and Christian sanctification, that, that properly understood Methodist Christian marriage is... Um, a means by which we are, our minds are conformed to the image of Christ. Yeah. Because this is where we practice all of the fruits of the spirit and where we practice virtues and stuff like that. And then he says, and frankly, you know, if that was, if that was the exclusive domain of women and men in relationship, then what would be the point of having uh, same sex friendships yeah. If, <laughs> if if the only if the only site of sanctification is found in the marriage between a man and a woman, then we should be we should not be encouraging, you know, uh, accountability groups. We should not be encouraging uh, same sex relationships in any form. They only get in the way of our of of our work towards sanctification. And uh, it's the best argument I've ever heard, because uh, theologically, anyway, because I'm like, yeah, it's a no brainer. But uh, but like I stand by that, like I, my kids have helped me understand and be sanctified in different ways. And my marriage has helped me do that. Like Elliot throws up on me every day. <laughs> and so I just I go, OK, you know, and then I <laughs> I keep going like if if self-control is a fruit of the spirit. My kids teach me self-control, you know? Yeah. That's a very, I feel like I heard or read about this first from Luther, that like Luther was really big on marriage because like marriage was a place where you could be, you could learn how to be a better Christian. Mm -hmm. That's probably right. I mean, John Wesley famously not good at being married. No, but. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. No, I think, I think there's something, um, I, I don't know. I have a lot of thoughts about marriage. I have a lot of thoughts about whether or not you choose to have biological children and then the ways in which we choose to parent and like how parenting structures function in the U S in particular right now, because, um, there's never been such pressure to be a great parent without the support needed to be mm. a great parent. And, and so I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot that we can learn about the standards we hold ourselves to by like reflecting on parenthood. But I also think you're really right that like when we choose to engage in these deep relationships, in these relationships that are like profound and sacred in ways, um, they're going to, they're going to change us. And they're also going to change us in ways where we will grow in holiness, especially if we are doing them with like intention. Right. Like Ian and I just watched the Matilda musical movie that's on Netflix. Yes. 
which is great. I cried. It was wonderful. And like Matilda's parents are very clearly parents who don't want to be parents, who do Mm -hmm. not engage in parenting with any care or thought or intention. And there are so many... Like Miss Honey is the only like parenting figure in the whole musical, and and I think that w- we end up we end up like essentializing biological relationships and like family of origin relationships uh, to our detriment when we don't realize that like there are other parenting figures, and that's why I hate Mother's Day in churches and uh, don't care about Father's Day in churches because I uh, am not a father, but like. Yeah, I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of thoughts about all of that. Um, but I am, I am glad that your kids are freed from the typical pastor kid uh, thing, which is having somebody talk about them every week. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I uh, they're they're their own people. Andrea would love to have me talk about her every week, <laughs> but uh, but no, I'm shielding them from that. That's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah. I feel that. So, okay. So my other question is one, everybody appreciated being in pajamas. Nobody yelled at you for not being formal enough because I, I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast or uh, just in, just in talking ourselves, but I do remember uh, there had been a comment about your attire at one point. And yes. so I didn't know if, uh, if that played into this at all. Uh, it did not. I, at least I haven't heard uh, a comment um, in relation to that yet. I think that if I were to have made Pajama Sunday every Sunday, I'd have gotten a comment. Mm, but um, but no, I, I think it was treated as a special treat. And, and I think that people enjoyed it uh, in that way. Uh, which is always silly to me because I'm like, guys, we could just do this every Sunday and it'd be great, you know, and we don't have to worry about it. It's fun. It's, you know, we might even have, you know, parents with kids show up and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, like there'd, there'd be all kinds of great stuff that could come. But that's not why people do church. You know that people don't do church to meet new people and spread the gospel. People do church so that they can go to heaven, you know. Yeah. <laughs> church, yeah. Church is just their weekly insurance payment. You know, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's what that is, which is whatever. I don't I don't have any time for it. So or t- a ton of time to correct it every time I see it. So Right, right. Yeah, I that's something that I kind of find in, in clergy groups cuz working with young clergy women, I now I see a lot of women in clergy groups uh, and I'm like, Oh, right. Some of these, a lot of it is actually like amazing and very helpful and like people bonding and sharing resources in like very good ways. But every once in a while there's a post and I'm like, Oh no, we have, we've strayed into clergy group territory with this post. Yeah. It would be something like, well, what, like, what do you wear to church? And like, doesn't it matter that we dress up for church and look our best? And like, I think there's a real theological conversation to have there, but also like we need to have the theological conversation, which is why are we going to church in the first place? And what do we think church is for? Yeah. Yeah. And then from there we can talk about dress code, but okay. That was my, that was my other thought about it is I didn't know that because if I wore pajamas to church, it would be a never ending conversation about my body and my appearance and what is dignified. Like I just, I just know but I think it's also different when you're a dad 
and also different uh, depending on like the church you're in and the people who are in it and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. There's there's a, a giant gender body difference here, you know, in terms of how people receive our bodies, you know, in, in, <laughs> visually. And uh, I also am – a long time ago when you were quitting, one of the things we talked about in the podcast was that you shouldn't underestimate how intimidating you are. Because because other than the fact that you yourself have many degrees, lots of expertise, are very smart and and know what you're doing, you also have the oh, I am also magic factor, you know, like that that even if even if folks don't necessarily immediately identify that is there in themselves, like it's still there. Mm -hmm. And um I uh, I do my best to use that if I if I may like I do my best to use that um, in order to accomplish goals that I think really need to be accomplished. Where I go, hey, if you got a problem with Pajama Sunday, you should feel free to talk to me about it. I know you won't. <laughs> you know, I don't say this out loud, but like I know they won't because nobody wants to actually show up. And have a one-on-one conversation with me. Right. You know, because I'll win. They know that. They <laughs> already know win. that. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. They already know that. They already know that I'll smile and nod and be like, I just don't care, you know, <laughs> and, and move on. Or, or they also don't want to have a conversation about what's in the Bible with me. You know, they don't want to have a conversation about who God is with me unless they unless they want to know, right? Unless they're curious, you know, nobody wants that. And so that's just sort of, I just use that, you know, when I, when I think we need to have a change in church, I, I just sort of say, we're having a change in church. And uh, if I have the authority to do it, and usually I can for worship, right? Like worship is sort of within my wheelhouse of authority to do that. And, uh, you know, and, and I say, this is what we're doing. And if you have any questions or comments, drop me an email. And nobody ever does <laughs> yeah. because, because I know they won't. Right. Um, and if they do, then, you know, it's going to sound weird, but then we make an example out of them and we say, <laughs> okay, like, I don't mean that in like a weird supervillain way. I mean that in a, I will not be bullied by you way. Right. And so right. like, if you think you can sort of, control me like you really can't like you have to you have to plead your case you have to talk to me like a normal person and we have to discuss it there is no listen to me boy you know no 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 i am pastor (laughs) you know it doesn't matter that i'm younger than your kids like i my name is pastor ethan and i might be magic and so keep that in mind (laughs) yeah i think it's such an interesting thing because I find it really valuable to use, what's the way to say it? To use our, the, the clergy mystique, the clergy power, the clergy authority, the clergy magic to normalize stuff that people need normalized. Like to say, you know, I'm a pastor, but I also go to therapy and need antidepressants. And like, I am no less of a pastor or 
or I'm a pastor and I can wear pajamas to church today. Like it's really okay. <laughs> the, the wrath of God is not going to fall down upon me. But that's also really dangerous and really ripe for abuse and, and all that kind of stuff too. I, yeah, I get, I have a whole lot of thoughts about, um, about that just because um, some people, the I might be magic factor is already less because people doubt whether you're really a pastor or not. Right. You know, um, and that happens for female clergy. That happens for clergy of color and cross cultural appointments. Like there's just a lot of times where um, I want everybody to think of pastors as people because we're people and there's really nothing magic about us. But if you're going to consider me magic, then like I'm going to use that. But then also I'm offended that you don't consider me magic. And so there's something there that I need to still work out. Like I need to, I need to think about that wisely instead of emotionally. But I know what you mean. I, I, I have identified that, you know, that feeling within me as well in a different way. Like I recognize that in a very different, you know, we just, uh, most of that stuff comes from me being young Mm -hmm. rather than me being a, a guy. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, but I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, so I, speaking of bodies and how we are embodied, what's going on with your body? <laughs> so this is the bad stuff. This is the stuff that I do not like. So I don't sleep anymore. Um, I can't remember if we recorded an episode on my sleep yet or if you and I just talked about it. I don't know. We've just talked about it. We have not recorded about it. So here's the, here's the, the quick and dirty version so that we're we're moving on because nobody wants to hear about this <laughs> i am so after thanksgiving i got home we spent thanksgiving with in-laws and we got home and the night we got home i just didn't sleep and but it was weird it wasn't like i didn't have insomnia like sometimes i'll get insomnia and there's you know, like we all do and there's tricks like i'll just be like eh, it's just not happening right now let's go out in the living room and i'll watch two episodes of bob's burgers and we'll see what happens you know like like it's no big deal when i say i couldn't sleep what i mean is i'm falling asleep fine but that first night after thanksgiving every 15 or 20 minutes i wake up i just suddenly kind of wake up and sometimes i'd wake up gasping for breath other times I'd wake up as if I was having a panic attack. Other times I'd wake up because I'm having this crazy vivid dream and I just had to get out of it. And, and like clockwork, every 15 or 20 minutes, and I'd look at the clock. Yep, another 15 minutes. Yep, another 15 minutes. Oh, that one was 20 minutes. Oh, And I don't know if you've ever watched time pass in that way but it's 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 bad (laughs) it's not fun and uh, that's just how it was that first night and uh, that's how it was the second night and the third night and the fourth night (laughs) and by the by the third night i was like i need to contact a doctor this is unsustainable (laughs) i can't keep doing this and so like i went to see a doctor and my doctor was like, uh, it sort of sounds like you're having panic attacks at night. And I have panic attacks. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it, maybe, but like, I can't really, I don't really identify a trigger, you know? 
and like, like usually I can identify a trigger and I can feel it sort of build within me and, and, and I know where it's going. Right. Like I'll have panic attacks surrounding Adrea's health. Mm. And so like if Adrea um, comes home with a runny nose, like I can feel that build, right? Like, Oh, that's the trigger. And then like, I feel, I feel it move through my body. Right. And, and, you know, and, and know where it's going. I don't really have that with this. And then I was like, but then again, after three nights of this, I certainly have some sleep anxiety now. <laughs> so there's, I could be having panic attacks. Um, but the doctor was like, it's probably, it could be sleep apnea, which I was pretty certain it was, could be anxiety, could be a thyroid thing, could be a heart thing. So they did some tests. And basically, the doctor came down on sleep apnea and anxiety, like those two things at once. And so I've been on some anti-anxiety medicine that I take at night. And basically, Joe, it's it's a little better than it was. It's a mm-hmm. little better. I do now every hour or so wake up. Oh, God. <laughs> rather than every 15 or 20 minutes. Sometimes uh, I'll do like three hour stretches. And then when I get, it's like the first time I slept for three hours since all this happened, like I got up, it was like, I got up at like three because I had like a three hour stretch and I went out in the living room where Beth and uh, Elliot are sleeping because they sleep on a, on a rocking chair mostly right now, just because mm-hmm. it's, it's hard. It's mm-hmm. hard to, for us all to sleep together. And, uh, and I looked at her, I was like, I feel great. <laughs> I am ready. I am ready for life. Uh, it's very bad, but it's almost certainly sleep apnea. Cause like my, my anxiety is being treated and, and I don't have those same necessarily a lot, those same kind of anxious feelings. But uh, Beth is like, yeah, of course you have sleep apnea. I've slept with you for like 13 years. <laughs> I, I know you have sleep apnea. And so like she took videos of me sleeping and I, of course, sound like a monster who can't breathe. <laughs> and it's just very bad. But don't worry, because my first appointment with sleep medicine at the University of Virginia is April 13th. <laughs> it's so far away. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's like waiting on my colonoscopy. Like it's like how? Like I'm not I'm not pooping. I'm not pooping like a normal person. Why do I need to wait until December? Like I once I had the um the CT scan that showed like the area of inflammation, they got me in for a colonoscopy and I ended up having my surgery to remove the cancer that I had before my original colonoscopy was scheduled. <laughs> like, right. like once they know there's a problem for sure, they get going, but getting in the door, it's God, it's a mess. It is a mess. It is a mess. And like my primary thing, like other than the fact that I want to sleep, like I dearly want to get a good night's sleep, is like I'm just I'm just exhausted all day, you know. Like I'm I fall asleep, uh, driving Andrea to school in the morning, you know, or I fall asleep sitting on a couch. I'll just zonk out, you know, or or like like, and it's scary. Like the one day, like Beth had to drive me to Harrisonburg, you know, for class at JMU because there's no there was no way I was going to make the hour trip. I was just going to pass out. Mm. 
you know, and that's and, frightening. And it is frightening. It's scary, and and it's and it's inconvenient, wow. <laughs> and, yeah, and all it. of the other bad stuff. And so that's my primary thing that I'm kind of dealing with right now. Um, tomorrow, this is a it's connected, but a, a, a separate thing. Tomorrow, I'm driving up to Pennsylvania for a few days, just me. And as long as I have a, as long as what happened to me last night happens to me, to, you know, tomorrow night, I should be okay. Like I slept in different periods and then I took like, well, after I dropped Adrea off at school, like I went back to bed for two hours and I feel okay right now. Um, but like I have to go up cause I agreed to do a funeral. You know, one of my friends from college, his mom just tragically just died in a car accident and it was awful. And he, called me and asked if I'd be okay with, you know, doing a funeral. And I said, of course, it's what, of course I'm okay with that. But like, I didn't go up for Christmas. I didn't go up to Pennsylvania for Christmas for, because of this, because I was afraid I wouldn't sleep or I'd fall asleep behind the wheel or whatever. And now I'm going up either way, you know? So it's just, it's a lot. It's a lot that I'm thinking about and, I just don't want to wait till April, you know, 13th <laughs> yeah. to start getting this treated. Yeah. Gosh. Oh, man. I Well, I'm glad you're going up for the funeral. But yeah, I my dad growing up, uh, he still has sleep apnea, but it was so bad that he would like fall asleep on the drive home and get pulled over. And it like <laughs> they're like, you're having trouble maintaining a lane. Are you drunk? And this was after he had stopped drinking. But it was like he was just falling asleep and it was it's the sleep apnea it's it's scary it is scary it is scary not to frighten I, yeah. you <laughs> no i know i i live it i know it's scary <laughs> i know it's scary and so i'm you know we're we're going to make it work i'm staying at a hotel rather than staying like at, with my parents uh i made that decision i was like if i'm going to do this i'm going to stay at a hotel you know, not like an expensive one, but like one in which like if I really needed to, I can like if I start having a panic attack, I, I don't have to walk around my parents house to like calm down. Right. You know, I, I can just sit in the room and, and do what I need to do and have some privacy. Because that's my whole thing is like like now I have this like ritual that I try to do to help me sleep. Right. Like mm-hmm. I. I have to take a bath every night. I have to time when I'm taking my anxiety meds. You know, I, I like sit in the dark, you know, like I do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I stop snacking like, okay, no more snacks after this time. Like, you know, so any trick I can to like try to do it. And so it's uh, not fun. It's not fun, but here we are. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like that routine thing is what they tell you to do. So there's yeah. that. Yeah. So for, for my life, um, I also like had problems with sleeping, um, but it was the complete opposite direction where, and I was sleeping all the time, you know, cause of the cancer. Um, but the surgery was successful. They got everything out. Turns out the tumor was stage one. And so most people who have cancer that's found at this stage is uh, the surgery is curative. And so they're going to monitor me as if it would come back, which is good. But, um, but I should be fine. Good. And I don't have to have a colonoscopy again until December. So that's exciting. 
so yeah, like I, I've just been like slowly recovering, um, food wise, I can like eat stuff again, which is exciting. But digestion wise, I feel like Adria must have felt because every time I eat something, my stomach's like, excuse me, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Yeah. But like stuff digests. It, it, like my life is just very different from before the surgery. And I'm like up and about and doing stuff. And like Ian and I went to go see Mothman yesterday and I drove there and back and was fine. So like... I feel pretty, pretty well recovered, except for the fact that like, I sometimes get tired and can't handle things. Um, but what I'm not really excited about at all is like getting back into the swing of work and doing things. Because right. what I realized is that like, I really uh, wanted this month off, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and now that I have to like do things again, I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to do anything. So maybe I'm still burnt out. Maybe we're always all burnt out. Maybe there's never nothing that's not burnt out. I don't know. No, I, I, we're all almost for certain always all burnt out. But I think it's because that there are jobs that we're not doing that would not burn us out. I was mm. never burned out by library work. You know, that's true. You know, I, I maintain that. There, there's still a scenario there's still a scenario where I do some kind of online, you know, masters of library science degree and I cough up the money and I just do that. Like there's still, there's a scenario in my back of my mind where I'm like, I didn't hate this. I didn't hate doing right. this work. This one you know, thing. You know, like I'll, I'll do this and I'll, maybe I'll be happy. A Quaker who's also a librarian. That sounds like the dream. I don't oh, know God. why we don't do these things. I don't either. I don't either. Well, I'm Joe. I'm glad. I was just going to say, I'm glad that you are recovering. Thanks. And I'm glad that um, even though you're like, your body is still not like totally back to where it was. I'm really glad that like pre-cancer, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really glad that uh, there's, there's thing things are changing and moving and you're not just sort of in the static space, right? The static space yeah. is the worst. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the, um, there's still some frustrations. I wrote on this for young clergy women international because they are doing a series on like um, resolutions without resolutions, kind of like what do we do when life doesn't have a, a neat resolution or we can't just like set up a smart goal to make things better, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I wrote about how like, uh, the the original pain that sent me to the emergency room, this like lower right quadrant pain that I've been having for like a year and a half, two years now, um, is still like there. <laughs> it's still mm. happening. It's different now. It's not as bad because I'm digesting better. And so like, I guess the pressure from, um, from my digestive system being backed up was causing it to be like inflamed a little more or just like inflammation in general around my body from the COVID and stuff. Mm. But it's still like, I still have this ongoing pain and I like, I'm now afraid that like I had major surgery and I'm still in pain. Maybe I'm just going to be in pain forever. And what do I do with that? You know, cause people are in pain forever. Chronic pain is a thing. Like, and like you manage it and you go through your life, but like 
sizing up in my brain like do I need to resign myself to this or is this a sign that like I should go to the doctor and see if like they can do something about this and it uh, yeah I I don't uh, part of it is like yay I'm better but also like no I'm not completely better and yeah yeah it's weird yeah 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 it sounds very weird and i i'm with you not having a resolution or or looking around and realizing "Hmm, this might just be my life for now Mm -hmm. um and the for now just might be for the foreseeable future you know that's no fun that's pretty that's that's bad and we don't i was talking to ian this morning he's reading a book about like unresolved trauma and unresolved grief And one of the things that they mentioned in the book is that like, we don't have any cultural rituals around if a parent gets Alzheimer's or a partner gets Alzheimer's and like, how do you, what do you do with this person who is not the person that you knew, you know, like they're, they're still there, but like, this is just a completely different phase in in your life together. And like, what do you do? We don't, we just don't have any, any real ritual around this. And it's kind of the same with like, I think when you get cancer, there's uh, people who have been through it before who are like, okay, there's going to be these scans. They will at some point tell you what stage you have. They're going to decide whether uh, you're going to be treated with surgery or medically. So with chemo and like, here are the things that your body is going to go through in recovery from surgery. Here are the things that your body is going to go through in recovery from chemo. But like, that's all kind of held behind this screen almost like it's it you don't know about it until you have cancer and i think it's the same thing with um with a lot of stuff in life that like we we don't know what we don't know until we're in that experience but like gosh it would be nice if we had uh some way to like help us make meaning or help us walk through this stuff the same way we do with like birth and death you know I do know. I, I I think it's easy to blame American optimism in our culture and it makes it hard for us to encounter like the real, you know, the kind of the tough stuff, like the stuff that is tragic or the stuff that is sad, the, the, the unresolved stuff. I think that that's in there uh, and, and, and makes it hard for us to have those rituals and those meaning making things. Mm. Um. But I, I sometimes I'm not, I'm not always sure if it's an American culture thing, or if it's it's just how people are a lot of times. You know, like if is it how do I want to put it? Is it that American culture actively resists this stuff, or is it that because it doesn't have this stuff, this is just what happens to us? Hmm. We uh, we go, oh, well, there's there's no way to think of like COVID, right? Like there's no way to admit there's not really a strong way for us to imagine what life with COVID looks like, you know, like we we imagine it like uh, a cold, but that's just not what it is. You know, it's not like we can we have the capacity because we we live it to imagine life with colds well life with colds looks like this we sometimes we get colds and they're frustrating but we take some day quill and if we can we rest but otherwise we live our lives like normal um and so it's not at all surprising that millions of americans 
try to live life with COVID like that. Right. Because we don't have a way of thinking otherwise or a way of being otherwise. And I think it's the same thing with a lot of this stuff too. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. But like also we are very adept at creating rituals around uh, back to school shopping and um, Valentine's Day cards and Christmas and St. Patrick's and the 4th of July. You know, like we have the, we have the capacity to create rituals. Um, We just don't have, I guess the cultural incentive unless capitalism can, you know, make a dime off of it. I like, that sounds very cynical, but like there are so many made up holidays that we have rituals around. Like, like Columbus Day, <laughs> there sure. it was the whole like school ritual. You like learned about the three ships, and you know, like there is we we are capable of doing this and like creating a story, but but we choose to do it around, um, and like I don't know as individuals if that choice is like really on us, but like culturally. We don't create rituals that would help us through these difficult things in life. We've created rituals around enshrining the history we want to do or the like Christian hegemony that we think is going to be palatable in the future. You know, like I, mm. I, I don't know. That's, that's a lot of cynicism. But. Yeah, but but like I think you're on to something. Like like human beings are ritualistic creatures. We're, we're symbolic creatures. We need this stuff to help us make meaning. And I think you're onto something in that way. Like, yes, you've identified these other, these other spaces, but these are, these are unimportant spaces, right? Like these are what I, all I mean by that is these are not like existential spaces. Mm. These, these are, these are spaces where it, it, it costs us nothing to, to do the very human work of meaning making sometimes meaning like, like I appreciate the, this lens of, meaning right like the the social study of religion often boils down to meaning making and symbology right and i think that that's true but i but i think that we fail sometimes to account for the fact that human beings are actually not as dumb as we think we we are and that i think and what i mean by that is i think that there are times where we encounter meaning that we reject hmm and that we say, mm, I actually don't want to make meaning here. Like, like, and I don't. I think that's a canny move. Like, I don't think that's a sign of of idiocy. I think that's a sign of people processing information and realizing that this information is information that will hurt us, and and realities that we don't want to face, and so we just don't face it. You know, I I did it for nine months when it when it, before Elliot was born. You know, where I just found myself in deep denial over <laughs> over the way my life was going to change. You know, mm-hmm. and I just didn't think about it. I didn't make meaning. I did like I sure I went to doctors' offices with Beth and I and I did that whole thing, but I didn't I didn't engage in like finding clothes. I didn't engage in the rituals of preparing for a kid. Ooh. You know, not because I was dumb, but because I had already decided that like to do that would make meaning. And I actually don't want to make meaning here. You know, I, I want to, 
live in a slightly um, less meaningful space <laughs> so that I can do other things. Um, and I think people do that. I, I, I certainly think people do that around COVID. Um, but I definitely think people do that around these really difficult mortality things. Um, and I don't think it's a sign of stupidity. I think it's a sign of us like deciding what we can handle at any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think, I think there's something to that. Um, hmm, I'm like, I'm, I'm pondering on that. That actually goes to the question that I was going to ask, which maybe Ooh. I will move into a mini sode, but maybe we'll tease here. Do you consider yourself religious? Now that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, let's make that a mini sode. Okay. Let's let's record that, but let's make that a mini show. Sounds good. Well, do you want to sign us off for this main episode? I would, yes. Joe, it's been great catching up with you. I'm glad that we're back to recording, and I'm glad that you didn't die of cancer. Woo! <laughs> That's a nice thing. Yeah. Because then, then, then Ian and I would have to do the podcast, and it would be a lot sadder. <laughs> <laughs> Just a real bummer every week on yeah. the podcast we currently do. <laughs> Oh, my. Well, friends, thanks for listening. It's been a, a, an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor? is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schomwolf, performed by Joe Schomwolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptive disciples, on Twitter at wthisapastor, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap, where you can get access to pillow talk, signed cards, episode suggestions, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and remember friends, pastors are people too.